Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. This is indeed Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I am Buzz Eisenberg. And Dan Torres, do you think we could get some walk-up music for Attorney John Pucci? No. Oh, goodness, he's going to have to wait. I'm sorry, John, and but we welcome you back to the show. Thank you so much for being with us. This is indeed our time with John Pucci, where we have been exploring the legal travails of one Donald J. Trump. John Pucci is a white our defense attorney. He has been for many years a partner at Buckley Richardson, and prior to that, he was an attorney with the U.S. Attorneys, in fact, was the head of the U.S. Attorney's Office in Springfield, Massachusetts, after a distinguished career with the Department of Justice. John Pucci and I were talking yesterday about the travails and the possibilities and the options for Donald Trump's co-defendant, a person who has not gotten a lot of attention till this time, but is really going to become a household name, or really may become a household name, for a number of reasons. John Pucci, I would like you to share with our listeners, please, what you and I were talking about yesterday and some of the most, I think, uh, salient and important aspects of these two men being co-defendants. John? So uh, <clears throat> so the person you're referring to is named Walt Nada, N-A-U-T-A. And <clears throat> he's actually not just a co-defendant. He's most importantly a co-conspirator, according to the indictment. He is charged with having conspired with Trump to hide classified documents from the government that Trump had no uh, no right to continue to possess after he left the White House. So he's a co-conspirator. And the evidence against him is laid out in the indictment is pretty compelling. A lot of it is on video surveillance because they had surveillance cameras in Mar-a-Lago, not government surveillance cameras, but uh, surveillance cameras set up by the the, the Trump people who ran Mar-a-Lago, they had various surveillance cameras. Uh, and those surveillance cameras captured Mr. Nada moving around the doc, the boxes, the many, many dozens of boxes that had the classified documents in them that are at the center, the centerpiece of the government's prosecution. So why he was moving them, where he was moving them, when he moved them, all of those things are very relevant to the idea and issue of whether they Trump and Nada were hiding the documents that were uh, classified and should have been left in the White House or certainly surrendered by Trump when he was asked to, to provide them to the government, or at least surrendered them when he was subpoenaed by a federal grand jury subpoena to surrender them. So Nada is, the, is, a, at, the, is at the center of the alleged conspiracy. So he is a defendant. Uh, Trump faces 37 charges, Nada faces six charges. They're, they're serious charges. They c carry with them uh, almost a certainty that if he's convicted uh, without further developments uh, on his side in cooperation against Trump, he's going to go to jail. So it's a very serious problem for Nada. Uh, interestingly, and he's a, he's a regular person, meaning he's married, he's got two kids. Uh, he's a, a veteran of the Navy. He retired after the uh, he, he uh, uh, left the Navy, retired. He then became, started a job in the White House mess hall, making food for all the people that are in the White House. And he gradually um, moved up through uh, that, that group and became a chef. I heard he was a good cook. And then he became a valet to Trump. And then he became 
a person very close to Trump who was in the on-call room at the White House. So when Trump wanted a Diet Coke, for instance, which he apparently drinks six or seven times a day, uh, raising the question, how do you get to look like him with so much Diet Coke <laughs> as compared to regular Coke? But I'll move on from that to say that, Thank that you. Mr. Nada was honored to present and provide and deliver to uh, Donald Trump in the White House Diet Cokes. And this is reported from several sources on, silver pl- on a silver platter. John, I want to go back to this question of his, the video surveillance of uh, Nada moving the boxes. Uh, it's compelling evidence. No one's going to deny that that is uh, Walt Nada moving the boxes. Um, and there'll be timestamps on the video surveillance, which is Trump's own video surveillance of his own property. So they're not going to get to suppress it. It's not something that the government did. But that leaves open the question, does Nada know what's in the boxes? How are they going to prove what that his mental state, his knowledge that he's doing something improper, uh, if he's all he's doing is moving boxes? Well, part of it is that there was a lawyer named Evan Corcoran who was at the top of uh, Trump's legal team handling the production of records. And, uh, and, and so there were communications from Corcoran to Nada about the grand jury subpoena and, um, and, and then there were discussions between Corcoran and Trump, and Corcoran's testified in the grand jury, and that's a whole other process we can talk about already, about discussions with Trump. And the bottom line is that there is sufficient evidence for the grand jury to, to decide that Nada knew that some of the records were responsive to the federal grand jury subpoena, and he was moving them to avoid disclosure of the boxes to the FBI agents who were con- who came to look at the records and then and then and then pursued the the uh, search of the Mar-a-Lago uh, residence. So and there's sufficient evidence in the grand jury. We'll find out what it is as time goes on. And my understanding, John Pucci, is that one of the counts, maybe two of the counts, is about lying during the during the investigation, making false statements to investigators from the FBI, specifically to conceal what was what he had done and what was in those boxes. Is that right? Right. So the FBI, besides executing the search warrant, interviewed him and asked him about the location of the box of boxes with the classified materials in them and where how they had gotten there and when they had gotten there in that process. And he is charged with obstruction of justice in relation to his misrepresentations to the FBI, which again gives rise to an inference that he knew that uh, there was something askew here, there was something awry, and he knew that it was illegal to have done what he did. Question being whether that inference is proof beyond a reasonable doubt in combination with the other facts. John, you uh, have been a a criminal defense attorney for many years. You were with the Department of Justice for many years. You were head of the Springfield office of the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office. You have prosecuted cases. You've defended cases. You are extremely experienced. You're a partner in what I think the largest firm in Western Massachusetts. What I want to know is how would you defend Walt Nada? Well, uh, there's two places that that there's two there's two paths forward for Nada. One is to go to trial and attempt to persuade 
a jury that he did not know what was in the boxes, as you've suggested, and that he's innocent of having knowledge of committed committed a crime. Stop there, one, stop, there, stop there one second. Not that he's innocent, that the government cannot prove beyond a reasonable doubt to a moral certainty, to a, a abiding conviction, to a moral certainty of the truth of the charge, government hasn't met its burden of proof. Different from saying he's innocent, he didn't do anything. Right. Okay, sorry, right. I interrupted. So one he, one, he can go to trial and attempt to persuade the jury uh, that there's not sufficient evidence to convict him, as you suggested. Uh, and if I were his lawyer, I would be telling him by way of background <clears throat> that in federal criminal cases, 95% of the defendants get convicted either by plea or a trial. So if I were with him, he were my client, I would say, Walt, just so you know, this is the wallpaper. This is the this is where the world we're operating in, where this case, as unusual as it may seem, ninety five percent of these kinds of cases, all all of which have their own complexity, some of them more complex than this case that we're dealing with, end up in convictions. So if you want to go to trial, I'm your lawyer. I'm going to do what you want me to do. I'll go to trial for you. But you got a big problem here, and it's not going to go away. And if you're in, if you don't do something to help yourself by cooperating against the, the former president or, as you see it, the present president, depending on how it looks at the election results, then then you're going to go to jail in this and you're going to leave behind your wife and your kids. And sorry, but that's likely the result. The other path is to say to him, you can cooperate against Donald Trump. You can decide you're going <clears> to <throat> make a play with the government and you're going to tell me John Pucci, you're my lawyer. I want you to go into the government and, and get from them the best possible deal you can get for me cooperating in this case and keeping me out of jail and allowing me to keep my family intact. So those are the two paths, trial or plea, trial or cooperation. Those are the two paths that the defense can go to. And it's a client decision. It's You have to inform your client completely and thoroughly and then you have to go in and negotiate and then you have to get the best deal you can get and then you have to present it to the client and if the client rejects it you're back on the trial path so you're on both those paths simultaneously until the case comes to an end for your client explain what cooperation means because uh so far we just have him sitting down for a cup of coffee with a couple of nice federal agents and uh, chatting about things. He's cooperating. That's not the deal. He's got to really deliver if he's going to cooperate. So tell our listeners who may not know how that actually works in real life, how it really works. So in real life, it begins with the defense attorney establishing a dialogue with the prosecutors. It can be by phone. It can be in person. It has to be a professional engagement. It's not a war zone. You don't go in and, and, and have war with the prosecutors. You go in and you sit there and you say, my client is interested in, in, in hearing from you what it is that you might do for him if he cooperated. Then the prosecutor says, well, uh, we're interested in, in him cooperating and we're prepared to work out a proposal, a deal of some nature with him. We're not going to commit to anything in particular um, but we, the prosecutors, need to be able to know what he would say if he were sitting here today. So what we want you to do is we want you to bring your client in for what's called a proffer, P-R-O-F-F-E-R, a term of art in the criminal defense world, which is a statement that is an interview that is done 
under an agreement that the that the words that the person speaks, the defendant speaks, will not be used directly against them in a criminal case. So it gives the defendant some level of protection that I can go talk to them and they won't at a trial, if it backs up into a trial and we end up at a trial, they won't say, well, he came in on this day and he told us he knew about the documents being classified, et cetera, et cetera. With one exception though, John, which is in a proffer, if he set, were to testify at trial, which he's never going to do, but if he were to testify, if he said something different at the proffer, then he could be impeached with it. Yes? Yes. And that's a tech. Yes. That's always a part of the proffer agreement. So, so the government says to the defense attorney, we want a proffer from your client. If I'm in the chair as his lawyer, I say, well, look, I'll give you an attorney proffer. I'll give you a rough outline in my words about what he would say uh, if he came in. And, and so I'm backing it up a step before my client goes in. I might go in and say, look, he knew Trump well. He met with him regularly. They discussed the books and records. They discussed moving the cartons. He followed his orders. He'll give you all that in fine detail. Uh, is that going to be sufficient? And the government may say, well, we still want to talk to him. And then there's some jockeying back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Ultimately, if all wants a plea deal with the government, I think he has to go in and give a proffer. So let's, what does a proffer look like? The proffer takes place in a private room, probably in Florida, it could be in Washington, in which there's several prosecutors, there's Nalta, Nada, his lawyer, maybe both of his lawyers, maybe more lawyers, Trump lawyers, and they get in a room and they sit across a table, like a dining room table, large conference room table, and they interview him exhaustively exhaustively about his background and then what happened at Mar-a-Lago with the boxes. They have records there. They show him records. They confront him. There may be pieces where the government says he's not telling the truth. They lawyer, they kick Nada out of the room. They consult with the lawyer. They say, this isn't working. This guy's not being forthcoming. The lawyer goes outside the room and meets with uh, Nada and says, they're not convinced that you're telling the truth about this, work harder at it. And there's a whole process that could last in this instance, because the course of conduct uh, lasted so long with regards to these boxes, which remember moved from, he moved them from the White House to Mar-a-Lago and then different locations therein. There's many chapters with regards to what happened to these boxes that that, that proper process could take a day or two and they may break it in a separate session and say, we'll come back tomorrow with additional questions. But there's no way in this case that they're not going to do the most exhaustive proffer that could possibly be done to learn from Nada what it is that uh, he knew and, and what they get, they can investigate. So if he tells them things about other witnesses who knew about the records and about other things they didn't know about Trump's knowledge, they can use the information to investigate further even if Nada doesn't work out a deal and ends up at trial. So they get evidence that they may not have, that only Nada and Donald Trump have. Very important. We're speaking with Attorney John Pucci. When we come back after this short break, my question for John is, if he makes the proffer, if he agrees to cooperate, what happens? Does he still go to jail? Do they dismiss the charges? We'll find out right after this.
for Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. What do you take to the beach? A book. Go to Broadside, get a beach read, like Happy Place by Emily Henry, Romantic Comedy by Curtis Sittenfeld. Have you read Lessons in Chemistry? Read it by the water. Broadside Bookshop Summer Reads for the beach or a lazy afternoon in an Adirondack. Stacey Abrams' new thriller is Rogue Justice, and you won't be able to put it down, except maybe for a quick dip to cool off. Broadside, Northampton's community bookstore. Order any book on the Broadside website. Have it delivered to your door or pick up at the store. You love your car. We all do. It's part of our DNA. If your vehicle gets into an accident, the people to turn to are the collision experts at Fort Hill Collision Services in Amherst. Fort Hill lets you leave your concerns at the door. They'll fix your vehicle to better than factory standards and deal with your insurance company from start to finish. Fort Hill is locally owned and operated. They're part of the community, and they guarantee the work they do every time. Trust Fort Hill Collision Services, Route 9, Amherst, and online at forthillcs.com. Are you tired of living with chronic pain, knee pain, joint pain? Listen carefully, because now there are new regenerative treatments now available here. QC Kinetics, the nation's leader in regenerative medicine, is now open, giving lasting relief to people with joint pain with no surgery, no drugs, and no downtime. Regenerative medicine uses highly concentrated healing agents from your own body. These powerful treatments can restore and repair damaged tissue in your achy joints so you can move again without pain. QC Kinetics has over 100 clinics nationwide wide and has treated thousands of patients with incredible success. Their advanced protocols are an exciting way to manage pain from arthritis and injury without surgery or steroids or pain pills. If you've got pain in your knees, shoulders, hip, or back, you need to check out these new treatments. They can actually help your body restore and repair itself. Call now to schedule your free consultation with the local medical professionals at QC Kinetics. Call 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. We continue our conversation with Attorney John Pucci. We are discussing. Donald Trump's co-defendant and co-conspirator, Walt Nada. John, of course, is a partner at the Springfield and uh, Western Massachusetts-based firm of Buckley Richardson. And we left the conversation at the point with Nada could go in, make a proffer, tell the prosecutors what he has, see what kind of deal the prosecutors would make for him. What are those considerations, John, from the defendant's point of view and from the prosecutor's point of view? Well, from the defendant's point of view, he wants a guarantee that if he's if he's truthful and he agrees to testify against Trump, he wants a guarantee he will not go to jail. First off, that's like the highest priority. And then secondly, he may want a guarantee that he's not prosecuted for any offenses at all. So even if he pleads guilty uh, and with an agreement not to go to jail, uh, he wants no prosecution of him. He wants them to drop the case against him. He'll have no criminal record. He will not go to jail. The only way to accomplish that is to say to the government, if I were there, I would say Walt is not going to cooperate unless you give him immunity, unless you completely protect him by giving him immunity. And I would say to them, look, 
Michael Cohen cooperated with you. He went to jail for three years. He cooperated against Trump. Weisselberg, who didn't really cooperate against Trump, cooperated against his organization. He went to prison. My guy is not going to go to prison, testify against Donald Trump, and go to prison. So the only guarantee you can give him is giving him immunity. That's the deal. He will be a great witness. You've taken his proffer. You believe him. He's a little guy in a gigantic mess. He doesn't deserve to go to jail anyway. Give him immunity, drop the case against him, and we will join your team. Now, in the background of this is another problem, which is Trump's PAC is paying the legal fees for Walt Nada. And so if I'm his lawyer, he's paying my legal fees as well. And I have a joint defense agreement with Trump's lawyers. We've been talking about our joint defense strategies, how to win the case. And if I go in and cooperate, they may well turn that a violation of the joint defense agreement. They may pull any agreement to pay his legal fees. And all of a sudden, Walt Nada, who surely has very few resources, having been a chef uh, in the White House, has very few resources, is all alone, out on a limb, without legal fees getting paid, which in this case, given all its complexity, if he doesn't get the deal he wants, he's going to end up with a million dollar legal bill. And so Nada is over. Nada has taken a step to cut the cord with Trump and he's risking having his legal fees not paid further. And uh, and 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 as everyone knows, turning against Trump has all sorts of problems publicly with the MAGA followers. Um, and so it's a big problem if, if he takes that step, takes a proffer, takes a deal, and if all falls apart, he'll be alone on an island with no place to swim to. John Pucci, you said that undoubtedly Donald Trump and Walt Nada have a joint defense agreement. Explain, if you would, what is a joint defense agreement? So a joint defense agreement is when uh, two defendants or more in a case make an agreement that they will cooperate with each other in defending the case, sharing information, uh, sh uh, sharing records and documents, sharing defenses, and working together to defend the case for both of them. And, um, and, uh, and so that's a joint defense agreement. And it's often an oral agreement. It can be a written agreement. But if you, it's based on, on the two parties having a common interest. And the common interest in this instance between NADA and Trump is to defeat the government's case. If in fact, uh, NADA joins the government's team, he no longer has that common interest and he's on the other side of the fence. And so there's no longer the joint defense agreement effectively dissolves. John, I want to go back to the issue of the potential for an agreement for cooperation from NADA to testify against Trump, because the prosecutors want his testimony. He was there. He saw and did it. And you, we can prove it and corroborate it, corroborate it because, hey, we have videotape of him doing exactly what he said he did. He told you the truth every time. He could be a very powerful witness against Trump. But if the prosecution makes the deal too sweet, that's going to give the defense a lot. So he'll say everything. He's got immunity. He's not going to jail. He's going back to his life. He'll say anything for them now. So how does the prosecution evaluate that problem? They want his testimony, but maybe they don't want to give him too good a deal. Well, the issue of his credibility, if he becomes a government witness, is always about corroboration. So he would have to admit his own wrongdoing. 
Trump would end up building a defense around that in some ways by saying that, um, you know, Nada did this maybe as a favor to him for whatever reason, but Trump didn't know what Nada was doing. Nada was working to hide the records to protect Trump because that's what he always did. He was his wingman. He was his, uh, you know, he was his defender and he wanted to protect Trump from the federal prosecutors. So he had the, he hid the records. And now because he's facing jail, he wants to blame Donald Trump. And so you could build a defense around the theory, that theory, not such a crazy theory. It's, you know, all things considered. That's what Trump, uh, that's what Trump needs, said about Michael Cohen, the lawyer. Trump fixer. needs, yeah, Trump needs a defense. And Nada could become the person who's trying to, quote, offload all his guilt and all his wrongdoing on the Donald Trump because he's desperate to save, not go to jail and keep uh, keeping, you know, his family intact. So for all the reasons that it's important to Nada, it's it's important uh, um, to understand that what he's doing is not telling the truth, blaming Trump, creating a scapegoat, which plays right into the narrative that Trump, you know, publishes all the time that he's being scapegoated and he's being, you know, blamed for things that other people did, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a defense if Nada goes in. Okay, last question for today, John Pucci. Do you think that nada and the government will make this deal or not oh boy can i wait till the next time i come on i think that uh the chances are better than 50 50 that nada will end up being a government witness and they will end up blaming nada for everything and and that i think it's better than 50 50 it's by no means a lock uh, that he will do that but i think the pressure on him the incarceration and the responsibility for the wrongdoing lies with Trump, and he'll eventually have to deal with the complications of cooperating against him. I wanted, actually want to ask one last question. I'd like your professional and personal opinion on whether or not this is justified, this prosecution and this intense focus on Nada. He's, he's such a low-level person. He's facing so much prison time uh, for doing what his boss told him to do, uh, probably without a lot of appreciation or the same appreciation that Trump does for the implications of what he was doing. I think that's fair, right? Just proper. Well, what's fair and just, I'll leave to, to other people to decide, but in terms of whether it's proper, it's been done routinely in any conspiracy. There are people with different levels of culpability take a drug conspiracy, there's people that are the sources of the kilos all the way down to the street dealers, and you can grade them in, in terms of the consequences and what you might sentence them to. You might sentence some of them, including a guy like Nada, you might not even sentence him to jail if he's convicted after a jury trial. But there's nothing inappropriate, I think, in mixing in knowing co-conspirators into a single case and prosecuting all of them um, generally. We're going to leave it there. We've been speaking with John Pucci. This has been Crime and Punishment. Thank you, John, so very much. Take care. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. One person has died following a fatal fire in Belchertown yesterday afternoon. Crews were notified of the fire around 12.20 p.m. in the area of 42 Daniel Square. The fire prompted a second alarm with mutual aid provided by neighboring fire departments. 
After battling the fire for more than two hours, firefighters brought it under control. The sole occupant of the home, an adult male, was found deceased inside the house. An investigation is ongoing. Several homes in Williamsburg were evacuated yesterday due to rising waters and heavy rainfall. Williamsburg police and fire evacuated homes on the water side of Asheville-Williamsburg Valley Road as the East Branch Mill River swelled to dangerous levels. Three people were rescued from their homes thanks to a massive response from the Western Mass Technical Rescue Team. City councilors in Holyoke are now in agreement over the building and financing of a new middle school. Holyoke Mayor Josh Garcia says the path was rocky to get to this point. It wasn't that this community didn't want to build a middle school at all the last 10 years. It's, you know, the community was divided and on the path to get there. Garcia says money was a big factor on why the project didn't happen sooner. They didn't support the funding model. It would have hurt a lot of people who are struggling right now to make ends meet. In 2016, a study determined the William R. Peck School on Northampton Street should no longer be used due to its aging infrastructure and poor design that didn't meet students' needs. The Massachusetts School Building Authority agreed to reimburse Holyoke for more than half of the $85 million needed to build a new middle school. We could see some spot showers today, but it's going to be a mostly dry day with the sun out. We're going to have highs in the mid to high 80s. Tonight, we do still have a small chance for showers, mostly dry for the evening. Then tomorrow, mostly sunny skies, highs in the high 80s and the low 90s. I'm Jack Wu with the 22 News Storm Team on 101.5 WHMP. This news update in Spanish is brought to you by our friends at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. La representante estadounidense Marjorie Taylor Greene, una fiel aliada del expresidente Donald Trump, fue expulsada del grupo House Freedom Caucus de línea dura después de enfrentarse con una colega legisladora, dijo un miembro del caucus. La decisión de expulsar a la incendiaria Greene del grupo de línea dura de aproximadamente tres docenas de personas se produjo semanas después de que ella participara en un acalorado enfrentamiento en el piso de la Cámara de Representantes con la representante Lauren Boebert sobre el plan de esta última para tratar de forzar una votación para destituir al presidente demócrata Joe Biden. En otras informaciones, las autoridades estadounidenses otorgaron el jueves la aprobación total a un fármaco para el Alzheimer que se sigue de cerca, allanando el camino para que Medicare y otros planes de seguros comiencen a cubrir el tratamiento de las personas con la enfermedad que les roba el cerebro. La Administración de Alimentos y Medicamentos aprobó el fármaco intravenoso Lekembi para pacientes con demencia leve y otros síntomas causados por la enfermedad de Alzheimer temprana. Es el primer medicamento que se ha demostrado de manera convincente que ralentiza modestamente el deterioro cognitivo causado por el Alzheimer. El proceso de conversión de un medicamento a la aprobación completa de la FDA generalmente atrae poca atención, pero los pacientes y defensores de la enfermedad de Alzheimer han estado presionando al gobierno federal durante meses después de que los funcionarios de Medicare anunciaran el año pasado que no pagarían el uso rutinario de medicamentos como Lekembi hasta que recibieran la aprobación total de la FDA. La gran mayoría de los estadounidenses con Alzheimer obtienen su cobertura de salud a través de Medicare y las aseguradoras privadas han seguido su ejemplo al retener la cobertura de Lekembi hasta que reciban el respaldo completo de la FDA. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This news update in Spanish has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Zuski Campanella talking baseball. The man and Bobby Feller, the scooter, the barber, and the nuke. 
They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially Willie, Mickey, and... And this is indeed Talking Baseball with the Duke, Duke Goldman, baseball historian, Northampton resident, leading light and saber, the Society of American Baseball Research, baseball historian and author, Duke Goldman. In the world of reporting on baseball there, and other sports as well, there was a huge and underreported and downplayed announcement in the New York Times yesterday that I think it would be important, is important for our listeners to know about. So share, please. So Duke. I was going in the sports section online of the New York Times, and I found an article. New York Times disbands its sports section, okay? And the story is the New York Times had bought The Athletic um, some time ago, I don't know, six months ago or so, which is this, this online sports reporting uh, 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 venue, and, uh, which, which has a lot of good sports reporting. And so now they've decided they don't need their own sports section. The Athletic is now going to take over, so to speak. And the Times, yes, does own it. But this is a tradition that is being ended, a tradition where the New York Times had sports writers like Red Smith, a Pulitzer Prize-winning sports writer, and, and Robert Lipsight, who, who I was lucky enough to meet, who wrote amazing, groundbreaking stuff about sports and society in the 60s and 70s. And even now, they have a guy named Tyler Kepner, who's a great writer. He wrote a book uh, about pitchers called K, uh, the story of baseball in 10 pitches. Um, and... These, Kepner, of course, is the only one who's, who's uh, Lipside is still alive. Red Smith died a long time ago. Kepner, though, was still a writer. And from what I know, they're going to just reassign these writers. And they may not even write sports anymore. And apparently, the Times themselves reported there was a contentious meeting about this. Because in some sense, this is a change. A, a, a shot across the bow towards the notion of reportage and, you know, okay, everything changes in life and maybe this entity will do a great job, but it's not going to be the New York Times sports section anymore. Sports is the recipient of an enormous largesse bestowed by American media, uh, including the New York Times. What other business gets four or five pages of coverage for free every day in a newspaper. Is that affected by this, do you think? I think now they're going to start publishing athletic articles. I think I read this in the newspaper. But, you know, it's a downsizing in some sense. It's a changing of platforms. It's a changing of focus. And, and, and you know, even though the Times will control it, it won't be the same. It will not be what we know the New York Times to be in terms of reportage. Okay, maybe this is just a sign of the Times, so to speak, no pun intended. But um, no, you get I, extra extra points on the show oh, for I do. bad, bad okay. puns. Yeah, for bad puns. That's good to know. But I, 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 for one, feel like this is this is sort of a bombshell, and and it disturbs me. I haven't fully processed yet what it's going to mean, but it seems like somehow it's taking your eye off the ball. You know, oh, more, aye, more. Aye, aye. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> Again, no. no pun intended. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, likely. Listen, Duke, a last question on this topic, if I might. Does this mean that there won't be investigative reporting, there would not be this kind of in-depth reporting, or does this new publication, this online publication that's going to take the place of the New York Times uh, sports writers, 
Will it do the same kind of reporting? I don't know if it'll do the same kind of reporting. The Athletic has good writers and good reporters. They do good investigative work. I've cited to, to some of their articles. Uh, the thing I talked about, I think it was uh, on, on Fair Play the last time about, or one of the times recently about, um, um, you know, what's happening with uh, uh, the incorporation of Negro League statistics into Major League statistics. Much of that was from the athletics. So, you know, there still will be investigative reporting, but it won't be the same. Change is the only constant in life, you know, as we all know. So, you know, maybe it'll be better. I don't know. But it's still disturbing. And then when you see, of course, that, you know, it's not a front, it wasn't a front page article in the New York Times. It was buried somewhere in their now soon to be defunct sports section. So I don't know. Yeah, I'd like to also point out that the Times actually uh, reduced the prominence of sports in the paper some years ago when it uh, took the sports section and removed it as an independent section in every day's physical paper and put it in the as an attachment or the pages behind the business news. Right. So, and that was mentioned in the article that they wrote. So that, you know, there's this, there was this transition in a sense, and now it's gone to a whole nother place and we'll have to see, we'll have to follow it and see what the reportage is like. Yeah. And, and I think, by the way, back then, Bill, that was also the end of the New York times referring to every athlete as Mr. Or Ms. Or Mrs. Which it used to do. It was always interesting to me that they did that. Added some dignity to the sports page. Yes. And, um, you know, some people might say they were fusty or fuddy-duddies or, you know, too formal or, you know, this is going to be cutting-edge, groundbreaking reportage. This is, you know, the athletic is with the times. Here I am again. Both both of you are really in tune with media. Does this portend? Is the Boston Globe next going to end its sports page? Is this something that's going to become a trend? In newspapers, as print media suffers the difficulties it's been suffering? Well, I don't know. I don't know too much about this, but I wonder if the Boston Globe itself as a paper will end before their sports section or with their sports section, because, you know, the Boston Globe barely has survived um, over recent years. They had been acquired for cents on the dollar, and um, they're, they're, you know, not a strong newspaper like they used to be. I, I think Bostonians would go nuts if they didn't have a sports section, you know, uh, but I don't know. But a lot of people, you know, the Philadelphia Inquirer, there's so many major cities that have sports pages that really keep their newspapers alive. Yeah, and I think that a lot of people who read the Times and the Globe and the other major newspapers for their news content, those readers secretly start with the sports section. Secretly or not so secretly. Yeah. (laughs) So, Duke, I'd like to turn to another topic, if I might. The All-Star Game is coming up. Uh, uh, is this a event that uh, people, you think, care about? Uh, something that will receive as much attention this year as in years past? And then I would like your reflection on what seems to be even ecl- eclipsing the All-Star Game, which is something that started as an well, and I was going to say an adjunct, but it's not sort of in the back, it's in the beginning, which is the home run derby, which people really do seem to care about. So uh, enlighten us, share your thoughts. So the short answer to your question is no. <laughs> okay, but we have a few more minutes, so okay. could, maybe you can... Well, d- I'll d- elaborate. <laughs> so no, this, the All-Star Game is of little or no interest. I probably won't watch it. I rarely watch it anymore. It is not a contest. It's barely even an exhibition. It is garbage. Guess what? The Home Run Derby I did watch. 
the home run derby is more interesting than the all-star game. What does that say? You know, well, first for, back up. What's the all-star? What's the all-star? What's, what's the home run derby? <laughs> the home run derby is playing off something that happened years ago in 1960. They had these televised contests of players like Hank Aaron and Willie Mays. That's the know. one I remember. Yeah, yeah. T- so, Ted Klazuski against Mickey Mantle. Yeah. It broke my heart. Klazuski beat well, Mantle on the home Klazuski, run derby. Ted Klazuski had bulging biceps. You know, I could you know, go on at length about <laughs> Ted Klazuski, but everybody would go, who's Ted Klazuski? So I won't do that. He was a home run hitter. He was. He hit 40 home runs three times in the 50s for the Cincinnati Red... I'm trying to remember if they were called Red, red legs. legs at that time because of the communist scare. They couldn't be called Reds. But anyway, I diverge. Um, so the All-Star Game is a contest that started in 1933 in Chicago, originally in Comiskey Park. It was part of an exposition um, in Chicago. And then it moved every year and it pitted the best players of the American League against the best players of the National League back when those leagues had separate identities. And it really was for the bragging rights of the league. And let's stop there for a second, because since then, and in modern times, the uh, baseball, Major League Baseball teams in the National League and the American League play each other regularly during Correct. the season, which never happened. The American League and the National League right. never so competed. So back then, this was the one time, except the World Series, when American League and National League players met each other, played against each other, and it was for the pride of baseball, and the leagues were rather different. There weren't a lot of trades between leagues, and so it mattered. And they played it like it mattered. They used to have starting pitchers go five innings, let's say. Most of the starting players played the whole game. Now, by the time I started watching All-Star Games in the early 70s, it had changed a little bit. Pitchers weren't going, you know, five innings, but a lot of times the starters went two or three innings. Innings, the starters mattered and the games mattered. And I came of age in 1970 when famously Pete Rose, Charlie Hustle, the man who gambled on baseball and lost because he bet money on his team when he managed, have to mention that, also had 4,256 hits and played all out. He slid into home plate and destroyed Ray Fossey's career just as he won the game for the National League in extra innings. It was exciting. The next year, in 1971, Doc Ellis started the game for the National League against Vita Blue, who we talked about recently, who died uh, for the American League, two African-American star pitchers, and Reggie Jackson hit perhaps the most dynamic home run I've ever seen, a shot to the right field light tower. I've seen it in replays and again, and it still astonishes me. And no fewer than six Hall of Famers, Johnny Bench, Roberto Clemente, Frank Robinson, um, Jackson, um, I'm trying to remember all of them, um, but six Hall of Six Hall of Famers, Harmon Killebrew, uh, all hit home runs in that game. That's that's that was exciting. Or Those games were fun. Carl Hubbard struck out six. Yeah, Carl Hubble struck out six straight batters at an All-Star game in 1934. Who were like Lou Gehrig and Right. Babe Ruth. It was Lou Gehrig, Babe Ruth, Jimmy Fox, Bill Dickey, and Joe Cronin. Yeah. So th- that now the game is a joke. I watched the Home Run Derby because at least that was fun. And in the Home Run Derby, it ended up that Vladimir Guerrero Jr. won the contest. 
And his father had won it some years before. And we saw people like Pete Alonso, who had won it twice in recent years, losing. And Julio Rodriguez, the hometown hero, because the game was in Seattle. In the first round, he did the most amazing thing. He had 41 home runs in that first round. And that, to me, was the best part of it. Does the winner of the All-Star Game still determine who's the home team in the no. World Series? No. They did that for a few years, and then they realized this is idiotic. And to baseball's credit, every once in a while, when something's idiotic, they change it most of the time not (laughs) well let me let me go back to one thing you just mentioned uh and that is pete rose smashing into the catcher to win an all-star game and you said that fossey the the catcher his career was destroyed because he was injured injured him very seriously in this collision and he was never the same and rose when cross-examined about this as he was in years after after the collision said it's a game it matters and i'd do the same thing again if i had to do it he said i only know one speed correct well first of all today you can't do that really because of the new rules that were promulgated a few years ago about the catcher has to you know leave a path to home available back then the catcher blocked the plate and you know we all saw collisions those of us who remember the 70s uh, you know that were you know no holds barred and that doesn't happen but again nobody today would do that part of it is today they're making 30 million a year it changes things but again the game doesn't mean a thing well aren't they the best of the best Yes, they well, are. Isn't it fun to watch the best of the best against the best of the best? Not when they're playing slow pitch softball. I don't care. It's not real. It's not a game. Hey, have you ever watched an NHL All Star game? No. Do you know what happens in those games? No. no. They don't check, and all they do is you know the scores end up being like fifteen to twelve, and it's just you know peppering shots at the goal, and it's meaningless. How about the Pro Bowl? Do you watch the Pro Bowl? The no, football? that's the football. Well. Again, they play that and, you know, football players aren't going to really tackle each other in the same way that they do when the games matter. I think now, the, le- the last NBA All-Star game was like 170 to 165. Yeah, I, think, I don't know. Even, somebody might have scored 200 points. No defense. <laughs> now the Major League All-Star game, which used to be, it's like all the other All-Star games. Okay. Now that we've actually ginned this up and have this overwhelming enthusiasm, people are just getting their television sets ready to watch the All-Star game. We'll take a break and come back more with the Duke right after this. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Ah, summer in New England, and the local farmers are showing up at the co-op every day with summer berries, basil, and tomatoes, an endless bounty of fresh fruits and vegetables. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats, sausage, lots of grilling ideas. And in the co-op cheese department, get fresh mozzarella for your caprese salad. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. At the Black Sheep in Amherst, they're still baking and cooking from scratch, just like they have for almost four decades. Did you put off a party or anniversary due to COVID? Let the Black Sheep Deli help you finally celebrate this summer. You deserve it. Treat your guests to their wonderful appetizers, entrees, baked goods, and luscious desserts. No need to do all the work yourself. Let the Black Sheep Deli help you make your party a success with less stress. The Black Sheep Deli, open seven days a week and still having fun with food since 1986. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday Downtown Sounds? Correct! 
gift. They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Full value gift certificates and you save 30%. Downtown Sounds Workers Co-op, a music store with new and used instruments and lessons. Live online or live in person. First lessons free when you buy an instrument. Plus, repairs of musical instruments and equipment. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. Your expectations. What are your expectations for your new home addition? Construct Associates in Northampton can show families just like yours a world of possibilities. From antique to ultra-modern, kitchen and bath, additions, design and construction, residential and commercial, renovation and restoration. Construct Associates in Northampton and your imagination. Expanded and released by serious craftsmen doing quality work. Visit their website right now at constructassociates.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we continue talking baseball with the Duke, Duke Goldman. Duke, all-star game, kind of notes the midpoint, midpoint. of the season. It's actually a little more than half Correct. over uh, every year. And I would appreciate your view of the standings, the teams, the pennant races. We do still call it the pennant races. They get a pennant, I guess, that they put up uh, in the stadiums. Well, they literally put them up in Chicago at Wrigley Field. I was just in Chicago. I saw a game at Wrigley Field, and they, they, they hang the flags in the order of the standings there. So, I mean, you know, it's not a big deal anymore. But, yes, they're, they're competing for the pennant race. And here we are at the putative halfway point of the season. And, you know, I had said earlier about, you know, predictions and what, they're, what they mean. And they mean nothing, quite honestly. Because who would have said at the beginning of this year, talking about the local teams or the teams we're all interested or many of us are interested in, that the Mets would be near the last place, looking like they might lose 90 games, the team with the biggest payroll. The Yankees, uh, the Yankees, you know, the team that... The <laughs> Thank Bronx you very Bombers. much. And I'd like to point out that that word is actually not subject to, uh, you know, serious fines by, by, the, by the authorities. Yes, you say not it yet. Yeah, well, although you had, you had yeah, a lot had of that, trouble. <laughs> yeah, I had trouble not, you know, excising the... the but the Yankees... Right now, they're out of a playoff spot in fourth place. And the Red Sox are only one game behind the Yankees and have won their last five games. I'm not sure, but somebody in this studio said that watch out for the Braves and the Dodgers. Didn't somebody say that? Would that be you, Buzz? It would. (laughs) Well, yes, the Braves are the best team. The Rays have been dropping lately. Um, the Dodgers are, are really loaded for bear, as they say. They're a good team. So the old adage, uh, adage uh, Duke, that, the, that pitching in the second half of the season really plays a more important role than it does in the first half. So can you just look at these pitching? I mean, the Orioles have a couple of good relief pitchers, but, you know, starting pitching, Braves have a great pitching core. and The Orioles have a relief pitcher who comes in and throws the ball 103 miles an right. hour. Yeah, right. Yeah. But they don't have starters like like the Braves do. Correct, the Braves. But you know what? Old adages also are not worth anything. It's not about pitching in the World Series. Yes, it may be in the heart of the pennant race. I look at the lineups. The Braves have an unbelievable lineup. One to nine. Everybody's a good hitter. Yes, they have two or three top starters, but they're winning games 10 to seven, eight to two. They can blow people out. Um, so it's not only about that. Of course, pitching matters, but so does hitting. 
and 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 defense. It's you know, baseball is the game where you've got to have it all going to really be a successful team. And the Mets don't have that. The Mets have. I mean, how could it, the Mets be a team that has the biggest payroll and their relief pitchers? Who are they? Did they decide to spend a little money on the bullpen? The Yankees at least have a bullpen. But I will tell you, I was at my national baseball conference this past few days um, and spoke to a whole bunch of people, Saberites, and the common line they all said about the Yankees is, without judge, they have a triple A, as in top minor league lineup. Will Otani end up at the Yankees? That's the question for you. I don't think so. Actually, right now I'm hearing that the bidding is between the Dodgers and the Mets, because the Mets have the most money. Okay, for those of our listeners who don't know who Otani is, 10 seconds, who is he? Otani is today's Babe Ruth, a great pitcher and an all-time slugger. And he, some people say he may get a billion dollars as a contract. He's going to get the biggest contract. He plays with the L.A. Angels, who are not in a competitive framework, not getting into the playoffs. And so they, he may be traded during this year. And he, if not, he's a free agent at the end of the year. And he's a Japanese player. And he's yeah. a Japanese player. And he did what Ruth didn't do, which he's pitching and hitting at the same time. Correct. I mean, he's a wonder. Um, we got to go. We got to leave it there. Duke Goldman, thank you so very much. This has been Talking Baseball with the Duke on Talk the Talk. I love that segment. <laughs> this is Talk the Talk. Forbes Library Outreach Delivery Service caters to residents of any age who are homebound due to short or long-term disability in Northampton, Florence, and Leeds. A volunteer will deliver your specific requests or select materials for you based on your interests. We offer books, magazines, CDs, DVDs, and puzzles. Call 413-587-1019 or sign up at ForbesLibrary.org outreach. Do you love fishing, swimming, or boating, but hate the trash you find? Do you want to help protect clean water and wildlife? Whether you live near the Deerfield River, Millers, Westfield, Chicopee, or Connecticut, your local river needs you. Join the Connecticut River Conservancy and help us protect our rivers. Our rivers belong to all of us, and each of us has a responsibility. Together, we can make a difference. Learn more about what you can do at ctriver.org. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls. WHMP.com on Northampton Radio Group Station. It's 10 o'clock. This is CBS News on the Hour, presented by Indeed.com. I'm Deborah Rodriguez. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has made a stop in Lithuania, where NATO leaders are meeting for a two-day summit to show solidarity with Ukraine. Zelensky's been pushing for his country to be allowed to join the group. Secretary of State Antony Blinken tells CBS Mornings it's too soon. We're committed to what's called NATO's open door, uh, to welcoming new members when they're ready for membership and when all of the allies agree uh, to invite them in. Ukraine has made good progress in that direction, and that's going to be reflected at the summit. At the same time, the Ukrainians and others are the first to acknowledge that they have more work to do, uh, continue to reform their military, continuing to deepen democratic reforms. Zelensky says the absence of a timetable for Ukraine's membership is, quote, absurd. A hearing is getting underway on Capitol Hill this hour on a controversial proposed partnership between the PGA Tour and Saudi-backed Live Golf. Missouri's Republican Senator Josh Hawley says he wants to know... Is this an attempt to, to get rid of a competitor? Uh, I want to know exactly what the financial stakes are. Connecticut Democrat Richard Blumenthal. The monarchy is taking over, apparently, this cherished, iconic American institution for the clear purpose of cleansing its public image. 
Bank of America has just been ordered to pay more than $100 million to customers for double-dipping on fees and withholding reward bonuses. The Office of the Comptroller of Currency says that since at least 2012, bank employees have also illegally applied for and enrolled customers in credit card accounts without their knowledge. In Vermont... Storms have dumped over two months' worth of rain on the state, flooding out entire towns. Sharon Rafino lives in Mount Holly. This is the worst this has ever been, but I heard the rain, and when I came to my kitchen window, I looked out, and I could see the water was way further up than it ever has gotten before. Dangerous heat is intensifying across the southwest. Phoenix could break an almost 50-year-old record for most consecutive days at or above 110. And the water is warming up in the south. CBS is Jim Crisula. Ocean water off of Florida is record warm in the mid-90s. That's threatening delicate and crucial coral reefs, depriving swimmers of cooling dips, and adding to the state's already oppressive hot, humid summer weather. Forecasters are warning that many places in Florida will have a heat index of 110 later in the week. Schools still have a way to go to bring kids up to pre-pandemic learning levels, despite billions in federal aid earmarked for that express purpose. New study finds third through eighth graders need more than four months of extra schooling to catch up in reading and math. Dow up 110. This is CBS News. Find great hires fast with Indeed. Their end-to-end hiring solution makes it easy to attract, interview, and hire candidates all in the same place. Visit Indeed.com credit. Have you Googled yourself lately? Are there negative posts from an ex-employee or from a former client? Maybe an outdated news article or sensitive personal information about your family? Search engines don't always get it right. For right or wrong, it's your reputation on the line. That's where Reputation Defender by Norton comes in. One of the most trusted names in online reputation repair. Reputation Defender has been fixing people's search results for over 15 years. Their cutting-edge approaches help you to wipe away unwanted information in your search results. They also promote the good stuff so that it rises to the top, helping you put your best foot forward. Your good name is too valuable to leave to the whims of a Google algorithm. Take control with Reputation Defender. You can start by getting your free Reputation Report Card at reputationdefender.com or call 800-401-6681 to speak to an expert. That's 800-401-6681. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. One person has died following a fatal fire in Belchertown yesterday afternoon. Crews were notified of the fire around 12.20 p.m. in the area of 42 Daniel Square. The fire prompted a second alarm with mutual aid provided by neighboring fire departments. After battling the fire for more than two hours, firefighters brought it under control. The sole occupant of the home, an adult male, was found deceased inside the house. An investigation is ongoing. Several homes in Williamsburg were evacuated yesterday due to rising waters and heavy rainfall. Williamsburg police and fire evacuated homes on the water side of Asheville-Williamsburg Valley Road as the East Branch Mill River swelled to dangerous levels. Three people were rescued from their homes thanks to a massive response from the Western Mass Technical Rescue Team. City councilors in Holyoke are now in agreement over the building and financing of a new middle school. Holyoke Mayor Josh Garcia says the path was rocky to get to this point. It wasn't that this community didn't want to build a middle school at all the last 10 years. It's, you know, the community was divided and on the path to get there. Garcia says money was a big factor on why the project didn't happen sooner. They didn't support the funding model. It would have hurt a lot of people who are struggling right now to make ends meet. 
In 2016, a study determined the William R. Peck School on Northampton Street should no longer be used due to its aging infrastructure and poor design that didn't meet students' needs. The Massachusetts School Building Authority agreed to reimburse Holyoke for more than half of the $85 million needed to build a new middle school. We could see some spot showers today, but it's going to be a mostly dry day with the sun out. We're going to have highs in the mid to high 80s. Tonight, we do still have a small chance for showers, mostly dry for the evening. Then tomorrow, mostly sunny skies, highs in the high 80s and the low 90s. I'm Jack Wu with the 22 News Storm Team on 101.5 WHMP. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to Talk the Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. I'm Bill Newman. And Bill, we have a really special guest with us. Uh, it's a timely um, appearance by uh, a Hollywood screenwriter, a member of the Guild, which is currently on strike, and an extremely accomplished and talented uh, man. Jacob Foreman is the screenwriter of All the Boys Love Mandy Lane, starring the now infamous Amber Heard, and uh, co-writer and producer of The Last Survivors with Haley Lou Richardson, and so many more things that it would bore. And I believe a friend of yours. And he is a friend of mine. He's a, he's the son of dear friends who are here in the studio, Shep and Leona Foreman. Now, while uh, Jacob departed from uh, the Hilltowns, he... He left the Hilltowns of Massachusetts? Did. Oh, come on, Buzz. No one does that. Well, something about Joshua Trees I don't understand. But he <laughs> likes them. He lives among them. And he's there in L.A., Doing something with film, and uh, I don't get it, but here he is. Jacob, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Buzz. You are on strike. I'm on strike. I am 66 or 67 days into the strike right now, and using this opportunity to come visit the folks here in You, you and the rest of the sc- Screenwriters Guild? The entire Writers Guild of America, which is about 16,000 members between the Writers Guild East and Writers Guild West, is currently on strike. And we're just over two months into a strike. Last time we did this was 2007, 2008, and it was a 100-day strike. All, you know, all estimates are that we will be on strike for at least as long this time around. Bill, up until very recently, uh, you would be very interested. You love writing. You love st- studying the writing craft. Um, and up until very recently, uh, Jacob was a faculty member at the a- AFI American Film Institute, teaching writers how to write, screenwriters how to screenwrite. But I want to get the image in my head. Are you out on the picket line? Are you carrying signs? Are you chanting? 100%. So I am, for the most part, picketing at Disney, not because I have any particular relationship with the Disney studio. Or DeSantis. Or DeSantis. Okay, Okay, good. (laughs) However, um, the Disney studio is one that's very convenient for me to picket. It is not a chanting picket. There are other, you know, Netflix, we like to chant quite a bit. I'm not that much of a chanter. Uh, But the Disney studio is fairly close to our home in Los Angeles, so I'm able to scoot over there with ease. We are walking around in circles with picket signs in our hands, uh, trying to draw attention to the strike. This is Dan. I have to ask at this point here in the interview, what's the strike all about? How did they get started? Talks, <laughs> is it about AI? Because that's what I started reading, but please. Thanks for asking that, Dan. This, the strike is really about an existential crisis in the screenwriting profession. Um, there are 
you know, we made, the Writers Guild made over 15 demands of the studios who are represented by the AMPTP, which I cannot describe, I cannot define to you what that actually is. Uh, but the studios rejected, without making a counter proposal, over seven of those 14 or 15 proposals that we made. The three biggest issues that are facing us now are residuals from streaming media, preserving the writer's room and the tradition of raising younger writers and training younger writers through the writer's room and having writers both on set and partici participating in post-production. And like you just said, the big zinger is AI, hmm. artificial intelligence. Stay with that for a minute if you would, please, Jacob Foreman. Why is AI such an existential threat? Right. So we are seeking to regulate the use of AI on guild-covered projects. I, I think we should. What is artificial? What intelligence? is artificial yeah. intelligence? And what is listen. it? What is it? What can it do right. that is so, that is so that is problematic? Right. So we use AI all the time. I do a lot of work in Brazil, and just to offer an example, one way that I use AI regularly is through translation software. Driving down from Ashfield to the studio here this morning, we used AI in the car trying to navigate flood-stricken flood areas. Um, we're using it daily. However, uh, the studios can use AI. The software is evolving to actually pretend to write screenplays. And so there is the threat. I, I had a friend on the writers on the picket line the other day explain to me how just experimenting with chat GPT to try to get a sense of what was possible. He took a scene that he was writing about a vineyard in France and asked chat GPT to write the dialogue of the tour guide in the vineyard. And what AI does is it scans the internet for every bit of information it can find about a vineyard in Bordeaux and offered pretty good four pretty good paragraphs, according to my friend, describing the wines that this fictional vineyard had to sell. But more than that, from your point of view, as I understand it, what AI can do is actually write the tour guide's presentation and speech. AI can write the monologue or the dialogue. That's exactly right. That's exactly what it can do which is to say it can replace writers. Can I just add something quickly uh, about uh, Chatbox? It's also taking from the internet what you just said, exactly. which makes me think it's actually taking from previous authors and previous that's, writers without citing it, right? Isn't that a problem as well? called is, plagiarism in academia. <laughs> yes, it is. It, and this is exactly what we are protesting for. We don't want AI writing or rewriting literary material. We don't want AI used as AI generated stuff used as source material in films or television. And as you just said, we don't want any guild covered material, anything written by guild members over the last hundred years to be used to train AI. This is an enormous industry. This is American capitalism at work to, uh, paraphrase, steal from the internet, uh, Follow the money. Tell us what the economics of this are. Tell us what, why they are, why they, the studios, are going to put up with and tolerate a long strike from you and your colleagues. There's money at stake. What are the dollars here? Right. 
I, you know, I brought in some figures to try to share, share with you a, a picture of what's happening here. In the 2007-2008 strike, when we struck for 100 days, it cost the Los Angeles economy over $2 billion. Okay, let's just hang on to that number right now. Um, our overall proposal, the WGA's overall proposal, would collectively pay writers an extra $429 million a year. That is less than 1% of each studio's annual revenue. Let's just look at Disney. We're asking for an increase from Disney in, of about $75 million. Their 2022 revenue was $82.7 billion. So we're asking for 0.91% of their revenue. Which they don't want to pay you. I, I, okay, there's a disconnect here. What you're asking for is a rounding error for the studios. It's, it's significant wage increase for the screenwriters. I got that. But they're willing to take a 100-day strike um, to save the money. I, I still don't get it. Right. This is, this is what we don't know. This is what is alarming, that they have whatever reasons they have for pushing back against these rather modest demands um, may lead to changes that are even worse for writers and that benefit the studios more. We don't know. Jacob Foreman, screenwriter and striker right now. Uh, do, do the numbers that you just cited, for not just Disney, but for the industry, do those include the residuals from streaming services that you talked about as one of the three areas that are being negotiated they or not do. negotiated? They, so those include increases in streaming residuals generally and streaming residuals for form, foreign uh, residuals. I think it's a stupid question. What are residuals? I, what are residuals? <laughs> residuals are, in effect, royalties. Uh, when I write a screenplay, let's say I write an episode of a TV series, it used to be that that TV show, we could quantify every time that that TV show was aired, whether it was aired on the original network or then subsequently picked up and aired on TBS or some other network. And I would get paid every time that the television program that I wrote aired. Forever. Forever. So when it shows up as a rerun at 2 o'clock in the morning and somewhere out in the, somewhere out there in the universe, right. um, you'll get some money for that. A little green envelope in the mail. And those checks historically would bring in for a TV writer, say, $15,000 for that time that their episode aired three years after it originally aired. I just talked to Harry Karamidis, and for one of the Back to the Futures that he edited, he still gets a check. Yes, he does. And those will continue coming. With the transition to streaming media, uh, we no longer receive those checks. Creators of shows are now, instead of receiving a twelve dollars or $13,000 residual check, receiving a check for 81 cents for an episode. And that's for several reasons. One is they've changed the formula. The biggest reason, though, is that there's zero transparency. We have no idea how many people click on Amazon Prime or Netflix or Disney in any of the streaming services. There's no way for us to quantify independently how often our work is aired. But the companies know, right? The companies know. Ah. Could you go back to AI for a minute? Because it strikes me that what the companies really could be fighting about is not wanting to pay screenwriters at all. Instead of paying 100 screenwriters, you have AI do all the work and then have one person at the end 
tweak it a bit to make it, quote, original. And that actually would have great economic consequences. Is that is that a fair analysis? It is it is possible. That is entirely possible. And this is the area in which we in the Screen Actors Guild are most allied. We're going to find out tomorrow night if the Screen Actors Guild has... They're currently negotiating with the AMPTP. And we will discover sometime between now and midnight tomorrow if they are also going to join us on the picket lines, which would be disastrous for the industry, but maybe it would accelerate a resolution to the strike. For the actors, not only could the, could the AI technology create new scripts and new dialogue, for the actors, it could actually use their voices and images to have them performing in pieces that they, as human beings, never actually performed in. I think that's called theft, but legalized theft. If, if it, you, it worked in Singing in the Rain, didn't it? <laughs> But so what about the directors? They have their own guild too, don't they? Right. And and they negotiated after the WGA and the AMPTP negotiations. What is the AMPTP? Association of Motion Picture and Television Producers or something like that. But it is the collective group of some 15 studios who negotiate together. Go back to what you just said. What's going to be announced and why is it important? Tomorrow night uh, by midnight, the Screen Actors Guild will either have reached an agreement with the AMPTP, which, is, which to answer Buzz's question, the DGA did a few weeks ago. Directors um, Guild of America. The Directors Guild of America. Or they will join us on the picket lines. They will also strike. Okay, and who are they? The Screen Actors Guild is 160,000 actors. So if the actors are striking and the writers are striking, what does that mean? And for, the directors are striking. And the directors are striking. What does that mean for... Television and movies. Right. So the directors are not striking. The directors did oh, create... They, 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 they made, they made have a, a deal? deal with the AMPTP. However, if the actors and the writers strike... The directors don't have much to do. The audiences are going to begin to feel this much more quickly. Right now, the major streamers have a backlog of work that they can continue to show for a while. And those who watch stand-up TV, late-night comedy... They're the ones who have already begun to see shows have changed. But really soon, if the actors join us on the picket line, there will be new, no new material coming into the pipeline, and audiences will begin to feel it. We are going to continue our conversation with uh, a very talented screenwriter and striking screenwriter, a member of the Writers Guild of America, uh, right after these messages. And when we come back, I'm going to ask, for those of us who support... Um, collective bargaining. Should we be going to the movies now or not? I'll ask Jacob Foreman that question right after this. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Sunday mornings on WHMP means polka, polka carousel. Every Sunday morning from 8 till noon, TZ brings his award-winning polka carousel to the airwaves of the valley, playing the polka classics and the latest polka hits. There are polka hits? Brought to you by Saluzniak Funeral Home, Northampton's funeral home for over 110 years and four generations of unparalleled, thoughtful memorial care. It's polka carousel every Sunday morning from 8 till noon, WHMP. 20 years ago, we envisioned creating a brighter future for people and planet. Now, PV Squared celebrates a big milestone, two decades of designing, building, and maintaining quality solar projects for homes and businesses in our community. 
PV Squared is a worker-owned co-op. When you partner with us, you get a team dedicated to the success of your project, from your first meeting to servicing your system down the road. Build SolarRite and do business better. It's the co-op difference. Learn more at pvsquared.coop. High school is a time of discovery, of exploring the world and shaping your destiny. What happens in high school has a deep and lasting effect. At the Hartsbrook School in Hadley, that means discovering more than the right answers to test questions. Textbooks give way to learning through experience, experiments, research, and group projects. Hartsbrook students take their science studies into the woods or social studies into the community, working for food justice. Hartsbrook students connect with students worldwide with the Model UN. And senior year, there's the year-long senior project. Each student chooses something to work on long-term with intensity. Also senior year, the class goes on a week-long community service trip. Hartsbrook students cultivate an unwavering sense that they can take action in the world and can handle adversity. The Hartsbrook School, on a 55-acre campus in Hadley. New students welcome in any grade. Schedule a visit on the Hartsbrook School website. Just call or email the admissions office. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We are back with screenwriter Jacob Foreman talking about, well, among other things, the strike and about his work. Jacob, I'd like to know, what have you screenwrote written for? Sure. So I, I have um, two projects coming up that, uh, as a striking member, I'm not, I'm not actively promoting them, I'm talking to you about them now. I'm just describing to you what I've done. Uh, a series called Bass Reeves for... Paramount Plus is actually called Lawmen, colon, Bass Reeves. And this is the story of one of the first black deputy U.S. marshals riding through the Indian Territory in the 1870s. So this is it's a, based on a real story? Based on a true story, based on the man who many people believe was the model for the Lone Ranger. Bass Reeves was, early in his life, enslaved. He was forced to fight for the Confederacy as a slave. He then escaped into the Indian Territory, and our show is largely about that very small window between Reconstruction and Jim Crow when this nation could have looked very, very different when Bass Reeves was made a lawman and able to arrest anyone of any race in the Indian Territory. So you had a black man arresting white guys in In the 1870s. Wow. In the Indian Territories. The show stars David Oyelowo, brilliant actor who was Martin Luther King Jr. in the film Selma recently. This is a project that he's been trying to lift for 10 plus years and wow. that I had the privilege of working on for the last year. Um, interestingly, every part of the experience that I had in that writer's room starting in May of 2022 and then being on set for three months starting in February of 2023 is what the Writers Guild is fighting for. Right now, the industry has attacked the idea of the writer's room. And instead of traditional models where writers get together for extended periods of time to develop a story and then are on set together and involved in post-production, the industry now favors a model where writers are brought together for three weeks to what we call break a series to you know, create all the outlines for a series. And then the studios will just hire one or two writers to write all of the episodes 
and no one will be involved in production at all. So the writer's room is about the collaboration that happens among writers over time. And the training of future generations of writers and showrunners. Before a series starts, are all the episodes actually sketched out? And how does that tie into whether a series that's been on for a year will have a second or a third series season? Honestly, Bill, that, that varies from show to show. In our case, we had written all eight episodes of Bass Reeves before production started. In so many other cases, they have written four episodes and are, you know, already have outlines for the rest when production begins. It used to be that shows were traditionally 22 episodes per season. And so in those cases, they never had the entire season written before the show began production. Well, so Jacob, is how different is it to write for a television series than to write for a movie? So I, I do also have a feature film coming out in very late 2023 or early 2024. And this, interestingly, is a project that I, I adapted a book called Uglies by Scott Westerfeld. It's a big YA young adult franchise. And... I worked on the script in 2012. I was the first writer to adapt it. And then I heard nothing about it for seven years. In 2019, the producer called and said, Jacob, my friend, Netflix is making our movie. What that means in this case is that from 2020 until the film production wrapped in 2022, no less than 11 other writers were hired onto the project, one at a time, each guaranteed only one draft to try to improve the script or make it ready for production. And I was not on set. I was not involved in the production at all. I'm excited to see the film when it comes out. And, you know, to, to circle back to your question, Buzz, I, I don't believe that people should be boycotting movies right now. Um, there has been a quiet movement out on the picket line of people encouraging, you see signs, people encouraging people to unsubscribe from the streamers. I don't think now is the time for that kind of action. I think we should still support the work that has been made. And I don't think that's where the studios will actually feel the pinch. Is there a soft underbelly here for the studios? I mean, what's going to make them say, okay, We'll make a reasonable economic demand, and we're not going to replace you with artificial intelligence. We're not going to try. I mean, where's the leverage here that you have? I, th I think the leverage is in the creation of new material. And I do think that at this stage, they still very much do need the writers and the actors. And so whether the actors join us or not, I think, I think time is going to be an issue here. I think the studios may punish the writers a while longer. It's very possible, Bill, that the studios already know exactly where they're willing to compromise and what deal they're willing to make, and they're just waiting for what they perceive to be the right time to strike that deal. Bill's question is a longtime labor lawyer. Uh, is the right question, but I guess I have another question, which is why can't AI write a script as well as a human writer can? Uh, Buzz, it's, it's all about the heart. The, the computer does not have the heart, cannot make these human-based choices that only a writer or an actor or a director can make. So, I would like to know, 
what you see as the writer's most important contribution to the final script from your perspective? Without the script, there's no show. Without the script, there's no movie. The script is the glue. It's, you know, it's the blueprint that allows an inc- There were over 4,000 people working on the crew of Bass Reeves. 4,000 people. And none of them could coalesce and build something so magnificent without a screenplay. I have, I have one very practical question about the strike. And that is, I don't know how to break this to you, Jacob, but people know the actors way more than they know the writers, okay? If the actors go on strike, these are household names and images, and it seems to me that will make a big difference because actors are heroes and kind of in the way that sports figures are, and that, it seems to me, might make a big difference, at least in public perception. Your view of that? I could not agree more. It'll make a huge difference. Those actors have already been out there showing support. They've been out there with us. Every time the Screen Actors Guild is on the picket line with us, it's more fun. It's a more beautiful line. Yeah, you go and you ask for <laughs> autographs and stuff like that. I mean, <laughs> It's great. People will notice when the actors join us, if they join us. I'm going to ask Jacob Foreman for it with an autograph during the break, but um, I can't thank you enough for being with us. Uh, our heart is with you and your colleagues in the Writers Guild. And, and I'd like to ask Buzz's last question to many guests, which is anything we can do to help? Oh, thank you for telling this story. Thanks for having me on on the air and asking these excellent questions about why we're out there striking. This alone is huge help already. Well, we love what you're doing and total support from Talk to Talk. And that was such a good ending. (laughs) (laughs) He's a writer. Yeah, you really, you nailed it. (laughs) Thank you all. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to be talking with Norman Solomon. We're going to be talking about cluster munitions. We're going to be talking about NATO and we're going to be talking about Trump. We'll be right back. Listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. One person has died following a fatal fire in Belchertown yesterday afternoon. Crews were notified of the fire around 12:20 p.m. in the area of 42 Daniel Square. The fire prompted a second alarm with mutual aid provided by neighboring fire departments. After battling the fire for more than two hours, firefighters brought it under control. The sole occupant of the home, an adult male, was found deceased inside the house. An investigation is ongoing. Several homes in Williamsburg were evacuated yesterday due to rising waters and heavy rainfall. Williamsburg police and fire evacuated homes on the water side of Asheville-Williamsburg Valley Road as the East Branch Mill River swelled to dangerous levels. Three people were rescued from their homes thanks to a massive response from the Western Mass Technical Rescue Team. City councilors in Holyoke are now in agreement over the building and financing of a new middle school. Holyoke Mayor Josh Garcia says the path was rocky to get to this point. It wasn't that this community didn't want to build a middle school at all the last 10 years. It's, you know, the community was divided and on the path to get there. Garcia says money was a big factor on why the project didn't happen sooner. They didn't support the funding model. It would have hurt a lot of people who are struggling right now to make ends meet. 
In 2016, a study determined the William R. Peck School on Northampton Street should no longer be used due to its aging infrastructure and poor design that didn't meet students' needs. The Massachusetts School Building Authority agreed to reimburse Holyoke for more than half of the $85 million needed to build a new middle school. We could see some spot showers today, but it's going to be a mostly dry day with the sun out. We're going to have highs in the mid to high 80s. Tonight, we do still have a small chance for showers, mostly dry for the evening. Then tomorrow, mostly sunny skies, highs in the high 80s and the low 90s. I'm Jack Wu with the 22 News Storm Team on 101.5 WHMP. Tag your it. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Tom Hartman program, your home for the resistance, commentary, conversation, and common cause. Join me, Tom Hartman, every weekday from noon to 3, right here on WHMP. 101.5-1400-WHMP-Every day, financial ads claiming to be different from the competition. Are they? I'm Francis Rayum, the money doctor, and I'm about to make a bold statement. I believe the thing to focus on isn't their uniqueness, it's yours. No one has the same financial situation or needs as you, and no one can help us help you better than you. But the truth is, when it comes to managing money, most of us are not as successful as we'd like to be. No matter how focused we are, it's almost impossible to separate emotion, and being in a relationship can further compound the issue. That's why I developed Hug Your Money. Financial coaching, coupled with online software and tools to empower you to manage money wisely. We guide you every step of the way to resolve immediate issues and plan for your financial future with modeling scenarios. So whether it's debt, budget, retirement planning, or a financial crisis, having a hug coach in your corner is like having a new best financial friend. Hug Your Money is as unique as you are. In fact, it's patented. Visit HugYourMoney.com. Are you tired of feeling like a watchless hero in a world full of timekeeping villains? Fear not. Hero Watch Repair is here to save the day. With over 20 years of experience and a heroic five-star customer rating, Hero Watch is the ultimate superhero of watch repair and customization in the valley. These heroes possess the power to buy, fix, sell, and customize watches like no other. They'll swoop in, rescue your timepiece, and restore it to its former glory. Call Avery at Hero Watch Repair, East Hampton. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. Bill, uh, the um, news has been uh, covering the uh, NATO meetings, has been covering the U.S. Uh, involvement in promoting uh, inclusion of Finland and Sweden in NATO, has been covering um, so much of what's going on arising out of Europe's second largest country, Ukraine, its invasion by Russia. And uh, I can't think of another person who is more competent to talk about some of the issues that are popping up in the news, timely issues, than our guest, Norman Solomon. Uh, we spoke to Norman recently about his then, I think it just broke that day that we had a conversation with him on air, uh, his book, War Made Invisible, Colon, How America Hides the Human Toll of Its Military Machine. For decades, author Norman Solomon, activist, organizer, has been talking about U.S. militarism and 
about the media's treatment of it. Thank you so much for joining us from California, Norman. Hello. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks. Well, it's early there, and I know that you got up for, for this, so I really do appreciate it. We have been focused on this. Uh, I'd like to start with um, the cluster munitions that the United States is giving to uh, Ukraine in order to um, uh, defend itself from the Russian advances that we have been hearing about for, what, 15 months? Could you talk to us about that decision by the U.S.? Last year, uh, cluster munitions were uh, a war crime. They were horrible. Uh, they were uh, terribly inhuman, killing civilians at the time they're used. And then later on, that was last year. This week, we're hearing from the White House, they're okay. It's all right if we send them to Ukraine, because after all, they're running out of uh, weapons and stockpiles of ammunition. We've got plenty on the shelf here, cluster munitions. So away we go. That's the decision from the White House. And this is really classic Orwellian doublethink. You might remember in 1984, a definition of it was a certain fact is taken off the shelf when convenient and then when not convenient, put back on the shelf. So we're in that zone right now. Uh, there's an effort in Congress uh, to block the shipments. We don't know how far that will get. Uh, from the state of Massachusetts, we have Jim McGovern, one of the leaders of that effort. But frankly, this should have been an outcry from Congress many weeks ago when this whole scenario was brewing. I wrote a piece that uh, was in The Hill several weeks ago that the ranking member of the House Armed Services Committee, Adam Smith, was floating that idea as of mid-May. And now the uh, cluster munitions are, are out of the barn on the way to Ukraine. So just in case listeners don't know, these cluster munitions, cluster bombs, what, what happens is they, before they land, they blow up into, they have the first explosion will separate them into Many bomblets is what they call, they're called. And uh, historically, those cluster bombs, um, about 80% of them used to explode and do what bombs do to whoever ha they happen to land on. But those bomblets, about 20% of them, would end up effectively landmines, would go into the ground for somebody to step on, in this case, likely Ukrainians, years from now, or not so long from now. Um, these cluster munitions, um, I think, have been banned by over 100 countries. I think all the other NATO countries uh, have banned them. They're considered, as you said, a war crime. And I think uh, that the defense of this decision has included uh, allegations that these, instead of 20% becoming landmines, it's only 1% to 2%. Am I getting that right? Well, the dispute is the Pentagon claiming there's a new and improved or not so bad. There's other stats, as you say, uh, 10, 15%, 20% are what they call dud rates. There's another aspect, which is even if there was no dud rate, which is uh, a fantasy, at the time they kill civilians, they just move in all directions. Just imagine uh, what, as you, as you mentioned, are called bomblets. They just explode uh, in all uh, 360 directions and we know the results when these weapons have been used 
in past wars, the United States used cluster munitions during the first several weeks of the invasion of Iraq in the spring of 2003. Uh, in my book, War Made Invisible, I cite a report, a little known report from the Congressional Research Service saying that during that US invasion, there were 1.8 to 2 million bomblets used. And as you mentioned, they burrow into the ground, they are left around the terrain. Children are often the lethal beneficiaries because they're uh, attractive little pieces of metal and they have a tail uh, attached to them. So this is the, uh, the gift that keeps on giving. Part of the rationale, and by the way, the Ukrainian forces, as well as the Russian forces even more, have been using uh, cluster munitions since the beginning of this conflict. And when Russia invaded, oh my God, the US media quite appropriately condemned these cluster munitions. And so it's a huge uh, swerve in another direction. And I think it, it shows, among other things, what happens when wars go on is that supposed standards that one side or another might claim to or actually be adhering to, uh, that falls by the wayside. And uh, not to go into a historical discourse, but a great example, uh, a terrible example, is in 1939, it was widely universally considered to be absolutely unacceptable uh, to engage in aerial bombardment of populated cities. By 1945, it was routine, Tokyo, Dresden, Hiroshima, Nagasaki, from the Allied standpoint. This is the trajectory we're on now. And one more thing I would add is that a lot of the rationale we've been getting from the White House and defenders of this shipping of the uh, cluster munitions to Ukraine is that the Ukrainian forces otherwise have their backs against the wall. They need this to defend themselves and to defeat Russia. Well, that is also doctrine of both United States and Russia about using nuclear weapons, reserving the right if conventional forces are not doing well up against the wall to then use those weapons as well. And so this is a, a race to the bottom going on. I'd be interested to know two aspects, a couple of aspects about these cluster munitions, and I appreciate your uh, helping me understand this, if you would, please, Norman Solomon. One is uh, what their long-term uh, use of these weapons and the, these, bo these bombs and the resulting bomblets, the resu what is the long-term implications of that, and are they more difficult to remove after the after the war than if there's simply landmines. And the landmines are, of course, horrifying and the destruction is just really indescribable. But I'd like to know whether the bomblets are more dangerous because they're more difficult to remove. That's my first question. My second is, there's an old adage that things, decisions get to the President of the United States because, well, they're difficult. And if they weren't difficult and there weren't and there were easy and straightforward answers, the question would have been solved long before it got to the president. And Biden said, I don't want to do this, but if it's the choice between leaving the Ukrainians without uh, weapons and using these horrible weapons, 
I'm going to go with the horrible weapons. It's kind of a 51-49% kind of choice. 51% is don't leave Ukraine without weapons now. So your thoughts on those two aspects, please? Those experts who have really uh, studied this say that, in effect, once uh, the cluster munitions explode, they become landmines. All of the duds are simply there, and it's, as I understand it, a distinction largely without a difference. They become uh, these bomblets or whatever you call them, ready to explode a week, a month, years and years later. This has gone on in Southeast Asia, another uh, lethal gift from the U.S. in Laos and Vietnam. These are still uh, the results of the initial bombing. Right, and so children playing effect. children playing in the fields are going to step on the landmines, and it's going to be horrifying. I, th- oh. That that that's part of. Is are and they pick are, them up. are they or pick them up? Yeah, yes, and pick them up as toys because uh, they look like toys uh, for for a child. We hear what an agonizing, difficult decision this has been. Biden, Jake Sullivan, his aide saying that in the last couple of days. This hurts me as much as it hurts you almost is the motif. The anguish that we're told almost exists at the White House in some form, tough decision. It's nothing like the results uh, on the ground. And so, it is a matter of priorities. And once we get into this war must be won at all costs, then the costs continue to ratchet up. I think a context of this that's so crucial is that as Jeffrey Sachs wrote in the Financial Times just after the Russian invasion, the United States has never engaged in diplomacy in this conflict. A couple of years ago, it became clear that this was evolving into a major potential uh, military blow up in Ukraine. And yet um, the White House had other priorities. I remember very notably just before the Russian invasion, President Biden gave a news conference and he was asked, would you be willing to state that Ukraine should not be admitted to NATO? And his answer was, I will absolutely not foreclose that possibility. We should always keep it open. Well, imagine if there were missiles situated along the U.S.-Canadian border, say, in Ontario, and the U.S. was looking at those missiles. Can you imagine the absolute outrage and the potential actions and the decisions coming out of Washington? Absolutely unacceptable. There's an entire Monroe Doctrine. There was a Cuban Missile Crisis in October of 1962. So this is largely about do as we say, not as we do. That's US foreign policy. I think of a bumper sticker that was uh, popular for a while from those supporting US military intervention in places like Vietnam and Iraq. And it was a red, white, and blue bumper sticker. And it said, these colors don't run, to which a responding bumper sticker said, also red, white, and blue, these colors don't run the world. And that is a fundamental question. Do we have a do as we say, not as we do policy, or as in what Senator Wayne Morris said during the Vietnam War, might makes right? That seems to be the problem on both sides. And the only way in this conflict is diplomacy to get out to a 
uh, decent outcome rather than this horrific spiral downward. We are talking with Norman Solomon. Um, he is the author, uh, his most recent book is War Made Invisible, How America Hides the Human Toll of Its Military Machine. Norman Solomon has written extensively for decades about militarism and about the senselessness of war, uh, including uh, his books, uh, War Made Easy and Made Love Got War. Um, he also is the executive director of the Institute for Public Accuracy. And when we come back, we want to talk about the media's treatment of not just the conflict with Ukraine, but NATO in general and the U.S. policy, foreign policy with respect to these kinds of wars. We'll be back with Norman Solomon right after this. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. If we didn't go for this project, the cost to repair the schools is estimated at $80 million, and we don't get help with that. So this vote is the absolutely the smartest financial choice, and it's getting a building that we desperately need for our educators and for our students. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Ah, summer in New England, and the local farmers are showing up at the co-op every day with summer berries, basil, and tomatoes, an endless bounty of fresh fruits and vegetables. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats, sausage, lots of grilling ideas. And in the co-op cheese department, get fresh mozzarella for your caprese salad. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. The Dell Technologies Black Friday in July event starts now with limited quantity deals on top business PCs with Windows 11 Pro. Save on select Vostro laptops with built-in security features and select Latitude laptops with enhanced privacy, collaboration, and connectivity. Plus, get special financing with Dell Business Credit. Dell Technologies recommends Windows 11 Pro for business. Call a Dell Technologies advisor at 877-ASK-DELL. Offered to business customers by WebBank, who determines qualifications for and terms of credit. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts and messages from community nonprofits. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. And we're continuing our conversation with Norman Solomon and... Um, just before the break, I was asking you, Norman, you have long been an observer of the media treatment of war. Um, uh, well, we have a war in Ukraine between Russia and Ukraine and the U.S. and other allies are providing um, both uh, logistical re uh, support to Ukraine, um, munitions to Ukraine, ordnance to Ukraine, um, is how is the media 
you feel the media is complicit. I, I guess I should just ask you the question. Is the media complicit in this war? Well, the media is really, in general, with very few exceptions, part of the war-making apparatus. The messaging is really crucial for these uh, wars, especially in what we're told as a democracy. And just to flash back, right before the U.S. began the so-called war on terror, there was a Gallup poll uh, in the fall of 2001, and it found that 90% of the public supported the impending attack on Afghanistan, only 5% opposed. So that's all about media messaging when only one out of 20 people oppose the United States going to war. If you look at, and I quote in uh, War Made Invisible, the kind of media coverage that we got right after uh, uh, and beginning with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which was horrible and should be condemned without any equivocation, there were not only in places like Fox News or whatever, but the um, elite liberal media like the New York Times, the kind of coverage that we literally never got from the US invasion of Iraq. And so that invasion by the USA, whatever the coverage was, it was nothing like what we got and have continued to get about the uh, Russian invasion and now war on Ukraine. So for instance, in the book, I quote the first day of March, 2002, the homepage of the New York Times across the top in big, huge capital letters, rocket barrage kills civilians. Not the kind of headline you got during the US attack and uh, war in Iraq. Then another across the top of the front page of the print edition of the New York Times, a little bit later, this is the headline, horror grows over slaughter in Ukraine. Can you imagine a headline in the New York Times about the US war in Iraq? And a headline saying, horror grows over slaughter in Iraq, referring to US military actions? It just wouldn't happen. That gives you just a, a slight example of the kind of way that the US media tent the window on the world, red, white, and blue. It's not journalism. It's public relations for the government. I think it's, that is such a, an important point that people are saying that uh, under false pretenses, Putin invaded Ukraine. Well, we all know what happened in Iraq. We know that there were no weapons of mass destruction. And we talk about the toll on civilians. Well, according to Iraqi body bags, they did counts from morgues. 186,000 Iraqis were dead by the time we withdrew from Iraq. It's, there is great symmetry, and it wasn't reported in the same way. That said, Norman Solomon, I would appreciate your perspective on Ukraine today. Russia attacked. If the United States and uh, NATO do not provide munitions for Ukraine, it loses this war to Russia. Is that a matter of great concern from geopolitically, not to mention what it means to the Ukrainian people. What's your view? It's a matter of great concern where one step leads to another, leads to another, where the United States um, expands, leads the expansion of NATO to Russia's border, a situation that would be intolerable, as I mentioned a few minutes ago. And, and let me interrupt um, just it, one second, because Biden did say yesterday we're not considering Ukraine's uh, application. Uh, yeah, he, he refused to 
Well, in the near future, but he refused to rule it out when it mattered right before the invasion and said that would be a prerogative of NATO later on. And right now along the border, uh, Poland and so forth, uh, Russia's already uh, facing missiles, which are ABM supposedly defensive, but I quote in my book, uh, even Radio Free Europe said that those defensive missiles can be retrofitted very quickly to be offensive missiles. So I would sort of summarize this way that um, there is no justification for what Russia has done in Ukraine, the slaughter that they have initiated. There is an explanation. It has historical roots. And the key question now is, do we believe in diplomacy or do we want this race to the bottom and this mass slaughter to continue and escalate as it has been? I think we... Uh, Norman, we have uh, so much to talk about with you, and we're, we've run out of time. Um, so I'd love to have you back again. The book is War Made Invisible, How America Hides the Human Toll of Its Military Machine. The voice is that of Norman Solomon, who has long been talking about the role of militarism and the way that it is celebrated rather than condemned by our media. It is available in your local bookstore, Norman Solomon. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Your voice is really an important one uh, as we all uh, hear war celebrated decade after decade, century after century. In the meantime, thank you all for joining us today on Talk to Talk. Remember, like Norman Solomon, we all have to walk the walk. And will not star Natalie Woods and Steve McQueen or Bullwinkle and Julia. The revolution will not give your mouth sex appeal. The revolution will not get rid of the nub. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday downtown sounds? Correct. They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Full value gift certificates and you save 30%. Downtown Sounds Workers Co-op, a music store with new and used instruments and lessons. Live online or live in person. First lessons free when you buy an instrument. Plus, repairs of musical instruments and equipment. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. Do you love fishing, swimming, or boating, but hate the trash you find? Do you want to help protect clean water and wildlife? Whether you live near the Deerfield River, Millers, Westfield, Chicopee, or Connecticut, your local river needs you. Join the Connecticut River Conservancy and help us protect our rivers. Our rivers belong to all of us, and each of us has a responsibility. Together, we can make a difference. Learn more about what you can do at ctriver.org. WHMP North